welcome to Lifting Leaders Podcast, where we're unleashing leader possibilities to make a better world. I'm Trisha Ryan, and together with Crystal Roberts, we're diving deeper into some of the complexities of the world's most critical challenges and exploring innovative ways of navigating through them. Through interviews with experts and leaders just like you, we are exploring what it takes to thrive as a leader today and examining new ways of thinking about how to creatively lead into a more equitable, socially responsible, and sustainable future. And the future starts now. Welcome to Lifting Leaders. Today, Crystal's going to start our podcast with a land acknowledgement. Crystal? We recognize the unique and enduring relationship that exists between Indigenous people and their traditional territories. We acknowledge that we are on the historic homeland of the Coast Salish, Muckleshoot, and Puyallup Nation. That's where we're recording from. Let this acknowledgement serve as a reminder of our ongoing efforts to recognize, honor, reconcile, and partner with those people whose lands and water we benefit from today. Today's going to be an exciting day. We have Will Paisley, a young, passionate leader, joining us from San Francisco Bay Area. We will explore Will's views around embodying resilience as a marginalized individual in the current professional world, and learn what he believes leaders should be thinking about and doing differently to fully engage the voices of marginalized individuals. Welcome, Will. Hi. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be speaking with the both of you today. We are so excited to have you. Before we get started, I'm going to go through your bio so that people know who, who they're listening to today. Marvelous. Will, who identifies he-they, is Native American, two-spirit, and belongs to the Navajo and Blackfeet nations. He grew up in the gorgeous suburb of Lake Taps, Washington, Coast Salish Territory, and currently resides in somewhat sunny San Francisco, Ohlone Territory. He finished his BA in spring of 2020 from Stanford University with a double major in Native American Studies and Sociology with a minor in Spanish. In June 2021, he completed his MA in Policy, Organization, and Leadership Studies at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. He currently works as a program analyst at the Laura Ariaga Andreessen Foundation, creating educational content on philanthropic giving and women in leadership. Will hopes to one day obtain a JD MBA and work in policy spheres to help empower indigenous communities as his own for the next seven generations. He is passionate about education at all levels and has defined interests in higher education stratification, college access, indigenous representation, philanthropy, and the title economic development. He can, you can find him every morning drinking his, and I'm not going to say it right, <laughs> Quitodia, quit, you're going to have to say it, Will, his okay. iced mocha. <laughs> Welcome, Will. We're so glad you're here. Thank you. I'm going to start you with your very first question, and that is, Will, please, tell us your story. Hi. Yeah. Well, hello. My name is Will Paisley. I use he, they pronouns, and my bio covered much everything else. I was born and raised in Burien, Washington, grew up in Lake Taps, Washington. My mother's Navajo. My father's Blackfeet. They moved us to the Lake Taps area. Um, 
what before I was born working for the Muckleshoot tribe, opening their casino, which gives me a lot of pride every time I fly into downtown Seattle mm-hmm. and see the big ads and knowing I grew up where I did because of that tribal enterprise. Um, grew up there, uh, went to school in the summer school district, then immediately went to Stanford um, after my senior year of high school, wanting to be a gastroenterologist because of my oh, own personal wow. familiar struggles with uh, GI issues. Quickly learned chemistry is not for me, nor <laughs> is STEM really in general. So I changed paths to what I never really thought would be a uh, per- academic career in social science and humanities, uh, choosing to major in Native American studies, sociology. At Stanford, I was very involved in numerous spheres uh, between co-op life, leadership within the Native community, um, student government, student finan- capital financial management, to the point where when I graduated with my undergrad degree, I won the J.E. Wallace Sterling Award from mm-hmm. the Stanford Alumni Association, which yes. is the highest award given for service to one's own Stanford class year. So I have a gorgeous little sandstone plaque on my desk that I keep. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can continued my Stanford experience with a fifth year to obtain my master's in education. And that was fully remote. So I actually finished my college experience, had to finish my last undergrad quarter online uh, over Zoom. And I completed my entire master's program over Zoom with only intermittent in-person meetings as the COVID, not the the COVID (laughs) ebbed and flowed. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. What a challenge. Yeah. So I'm going to add one little thing here is that um, (laughs) I know Will a little bit. So Hmm. I just want to say a couple of personal things about Will is I've had the pleasure to actually get to watch uh, Will grow up for the most part. And he's a a good friend of my middle daughter. And of course, they're both adults now. But um, it's been it's been such a pleasure, Will, to get to to see you um, grow up, and I'm just so proud of all the things that you have done, and how you have um, kind of really blossomed and uh, are living into the best version of you. And so I just want to give you that shout out. And so we're really excited to have you here because you really represent um, our future. And so. Um, we're, we're really glad to have you on the podcast. Um, and you know, it's fun to see the past, but we just are so excited for where you're going to be headed in the future. And I think, you know, Trisha and I, we're on the other end of our careers. We're towards the, the, we've still got some years left, but (laughs) we'll say twilight, (laughs) but we're on the other end. And so it's so nice, you know, it gives us such hope to see Mm -hmm. leaders like yourself, um, coming into um coming into the world as as leaders and showing up in such positive ways and so um just just our pleasure to have you here today thank you so much yeah i've got the second question um there's a lot of conversation this kind of goes to what you were just talking about as far as you know the surviving and thriving in covid um there's a lot of conversation going on right now about resilience it's like a huge topic right in the work in the workforce and especially as it relates to COVID, um, with adults and children being sent home to work and learn remotely, um, the conversation, um, I was just actually listening to another uh, Marcus Buckingham, um, uh, his 
um, sort of version of what do we do now with the work workforce? We stay at home. You know, what's the research that will help us make those decisions about what do we do? Do we stay at home? Do we come back? How does hybrid work? So um, you yourself, as you just said, uh, finished your undergrad degree and went through the, your entire graduate degree during the pandemic. And that sh shifts, you know, what that's like um, to be, have to do that remotely without that um, on on campus presence. So how has just living through this time, how has this informed your thinking about resiliency? Completely, yeah. That's a very important question given, you know, you kind of have to have it to survive these days. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think back very much to the very early days of the pandemic. You know, we're, we're from the Puget Sound area. If you remember, at the, quite the beginning, it was the alarms went off in our hometown in Kirkland, I believe, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. So I had, my family had like alarms blaring before anyone else. Um, I was told to leave, to get ready very quick. And so I had some forewarning um, when the pandemic started uh, to get ready to leave and maybe and not continue um, camp like the life as normal as I knew as an undergraduate student. Little did obviously none of us knew at the time how long it would prolong, but I think it's kind of like I, I see myself and this the experience I've had through COVID is forged in fire. Um, through mm. crisis, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about the people who you really care about, who will care about you and who will be your support system. And there's some connections that obviously falter and ebb and flow. But as like a young person specifically, like entering the professional world and trying to finish up their academic career at the beginning of the pandemic, I found it so imperative to rely either like being with friends physically, which was very difficult mm. unless you were in a pod, but connecting over different mediums specifically like digital mediums and finding ways to support yourself within your own with kind of a chosen community of friends because imagine per se being like a 21 year old like college student and you have your whole like social life around people your age and then in sure. one moment you're there and the next you're sitting in your childhood bedroom i had a very privileged COVID experience of experiencing it on my father's 50 acre property in the mm. Olympic peninsula with all the forest and <laughs> trails to explore as I wanted. But it's very, that obviously, as you can imagine, is very different than living on the Stanford campus yeah. and in a community of 54 of my peers, which I was a leader in, um, a residential staff member. So I really see uh, resilience in that sense for young people being a, a, like a necessary skill that you have to build internally, but also it depends on the external factors mm -hmm. that are constantly shifting around you and trying to find some constant source of comfort. Per se, I think of I think of myself, I've had to shift a lot of habits in the past few years. Um, due to like physical, like med uh, medical issues, like I had to ebb and flow in terms of my mobility when COVID started, which was not uh, obviously opportune given the mm, fact yeah. that you know, the medical system was overburdened. But once I recovered from some medical issues, I had to find a new kind of way to be mobile. And per se, my new favorite mindfulness practice for keeping myself resilient and sane is yoga, daily yoga, and nice. having that be my grounding and practicing meditation. Um, yeah, I feel like I'm rambling now off the main question, but there's well, a little bit in there. Yeah, I, I think, you know, what you were saying is so important. And when we talk to, to people, it's like they're, we, we can hold both those things, right? The things that were really tough, 
like, I'm not sure if you were able to actually have a graduation, but a lot yeah. of people didn't get to actually walk and have a graduation. Mm -hmm. And you work so hard mm -hmm. to not, yeah. and that's hard for the parents as well, because they don't get to mm -hmm. celebrate with you to say, and be able to sort of vicariously, um, you know, watch you go through, um, a graduation and that's an important yeah. ritual. Um, mm -hmm. and then just, thinking about like the, the hard stuff, the grief that we go through. And then of course people lost people as well, but then also mm. holding the fact that there was some positives, like you learned some really um, skills that will help you your whole life mm -hmm. around the, the good practices that you put in place around yoga and meditation. Mm. You had a chance to actually spend some time out on the, in this beautiful um, place, your, your father's place, right. In yeah. the woods and, that, that grounding, we know nature is really good for our, um, sort of our psyche and our mental health. So yeah, we have both and that's part of that resilience. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think about even when I was starting in business years and years ago, I don't think I ever really tested or had to test my resilience before that too much. I mean, maybe once in school, but it was an incident, right? But you've had this added challenge of having to pretty much grow your resilience um, just by going through school because you had so many factors that were, you know, beating up against you based on the fact that we lived in a pandemic time, right? And it's just, it, it's something that you hope that people won't have to, to um, come into their resilience or learn resilience and hopefully learn it uh, until they get into business and they have to test themselves and see how their skills are playing out in the real world and that kind of thing. Yeah. But you, you had to grow it a little earlier. And I would think in a way, even though it's a challenge, that it might actually help you in business as you're, you know, dealing with challenges or, or even pitfalls that happen in your daily work. I don't know. What do you think about that? Are you? No, I think that, I think that's very, very true and accurate. I think specifically to, um, in terms of like coping, like relationships, you know, mm -hmm. for me personally, like relationships define my life and the connections I have with peers, whether it be, I think very sociologically because I did study sociology, hmm. um, like network <laughs> theory and the strength of weak ties and such. Yeah. Um, yeah. but finding coping mechanisms for understanding the changing landscape is very important. Like I think two of the big things I ascribe to, which people always make fun of the way I talk uh, because I have these little willisms. Um, <laughs> but as my friend who talked to my father recently said, he talks just like you. And she's like, they're not willisms. You stole them from here with their gravyism. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he did raise me. Um, I also have many from my mom's little Lisa-isms. But um, So t share, think, what's a willism? Yeah. Do you have an Give example? Give us a couple. Oh God. Um, well, I think one, they'll just, one will just come out. Like I, I don't do them consciously. You'll just hear some weird little phrases. I go, Oh, um, like, thank you kindly. That's one of my, oh. um, very Montana. But I think of, um, Oh, like connections and relationships. So as a young person, you know, you rely very much on your changing environment of friends and family to, um, support you yourself. So I have adopted approach when I say goodbye to a friend. I don't say goodbye. I say, I'll see you later. Mm -hmm. Like in terms of the sense of, 
Maybe That's I will, nice. maybe I won't for a long time, but in my mind, I hold that memory of that individual and I can find comfort in knowing I had that connection at that time and it might not be there for a while, but it's never fully goodbye. Mm. But mm. of That's course, beautiful. you know, we That's all lovely, have actually. that own spiritual way of how we look at that. Mm-hmm. Another one is, um, oh shoot, I just had it on the top of my head. I will circle back to that when it okay. comes, when it comes back to you. <laughs> Was that a willism that, oh, shoot? Okay. No, no, no that, was just, that was just me looking my track train of thought. I'm going to take you on to your next question, which is, you know, <laughs> while we think about resilience, we're missing the fact that marginalized communities have another yeah. layer of realities that test their resilience. These realities are not new, but with your commitment to empower indigenous communities as you your own for the next seven generations. Where does resilience fit in or show up in this journey? Yeah, that's a super important question. Um, So within Native communities and Native studies itself, resilience has been a topic of conversation for a long time. I think you have community resilience, obviously the trauma of settler colonialism and multiple centuries of continued oppression and um, just like systematic genocide through federal policies mm-hmm. and such, both within the United States, Canada, and then all colonized peoples around generally. So indigenous resilience itself, I personally found it within the community of peers from my own tribes um, that are my age who I know, as well as my family. Um, and it's just a very different lens of looking at the world per se, uh, but Crystal knows the environment I grew up in very well. My family, I always, my, always used to say like, my family's the only Indian family on the block and we're the only POC family within probably like 90 houses either way on the lake. Yeah. <laughs> Very rare. <laughs> so when you're, you know, um, I, the phrase that we, I use a lot is like being the only. So in a lot of spaces, um, there may be other people of color, but in a lot of spaces, my, like, um, this is similar to the experience my parents both had in their business careers as being MBAs themselves is you're the only of your, identity within that space. So you have to find some sense of belonging through ritual, through practice, through connections, per se, like, as you look at my background, like I have art in my apartment, in my apartment, that brings me comfort. I have practices, um, spiritual practices that I use to ground myself to my ancestors and to my goals. I have adornment that I usually wear very extensively, but not since COVID, because why would I not why would I get out of my loungewear if I'm working from <laughs> <laughs> You know, as you say, practices change. I used to, you know, embody sartorial splendor, but now you have to really fight to get me out of my Calvin Klein sweatpants. Um, so yeah, I think I speak specific. I'm speaking specifically to like the indigenous experience of resilience. Yeah. But um, another interesting topic on that is I I'm friends with some old, um, some, not older, some <laughs> more adult native scholars um, who are who are really at the forefront of some thinking, of a lot of thinking and work being done to advance indigenous interests in different spaces in society, such as like data science and health, public health, et cetera. And some people don't, indigenous people don't really like the word resilient anymore. Mm. They're, they say they're tired of being resilient mm. because um, we just want to be powerful. Like yeah. we don't want to have to keep weathering. We just want to have the right to exist, which is a distinct perspective. It's not one I fully share, um, but uh, it's it makes sense. You know, we have to really rethink kind of these larger um, 
larger terms as like umbrella, all encompassing and note that they are very distinct for each community and how they perceive them. And on that note as well, there's a concept that I'm a huge fan of personally called survivance, which is like, mm. as you can tell, the word survival and resistance put together. Mm -hmm. It was posited by this incredible scholar who I had the privilege of meeting while at Stanford when he was a visiting professor, who's Ojibwe, uh, White Earth, I believe his name is Gerald Bizenor. Um, and he wrote a book on indigenous survivance as basically the like this combination of survival and resi and resilience and also kind of resistance in there mm -hmm. of just not having to I'm gonna butcher the definition. So one second. Um, not having to just continuously fight to be to be recognized and to exist, but yeah. rather, uh, this term also is like originally derives from legal from um, legal studies. Um, but Gerald Visnor defines it as survivance is an active sense of presence, the continuance of native stories, not a mere reaction or su a survivable name. Native survivance stories are renunciations of dominance, tragedy, and victimry, um, which is a you know kind of framework to look at it as resistance. Resilience is in in a way you could interpret it as say as giving into a victimization ideal mm -hmm. of but a lot of us don't aren't interested in playing like the oppression olympics or yeah. seeing ourselves as a victims rather we just want to be seen as people who continue to this day and are continuous and obviously evolving you know because per yeah. se culture doesn't culture doesn't exist if it's static yeah. it always yeah. evolves like traditions constantly evolving as well right. and the way my people look will constantly evolve the way we interact with society will constantly evolve but that doesn't make us any less than what our predecessors were. Mm -hmm. Unless, of course, you stray like super far. You know? <laughs> <laughs> there are limits. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. I, Trisha and I were actually having this conversation when we were prepping for this. Mm -hmm. The same. And so I'm so glad that you brought this up. Um, mm -hmm. Is is how how do different groups actually define resilience? And, and do you take, yeah. take that on? And how is that different than oppression? And is it? Because we look at the long view, and I love the fact that you had brought up, it was in your bio, about the seven-year um, horizon yeah. sort of looking like, and do you see the resilience in the long horizon? Because it's not about mm -hmm. every day. So it's like mm -hmm. overall we, we rise in, the, in this sort of longer um, horizon perspective. So that was super interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. That's an idea called the um, seven generation concept, which yeah. is derived from the uh, Iroquois nation, um, who also known in their language as the Haudenosaunee people. And it's uh, specifically, uh, it's their term, yeah. but it's, yeah. it's, it's a concept that exists like in different forms in a lot of different native communities, but it's very much um, attached to this ideal that everything you do in this day should be for the benefit of the next seven generations, which is a very long you know, way of thinking. But in cultures as our own are so intergenerationally connected and dependent on wh those who came before and what we want to. And also when you're fighting for survival, that's yeah. the concept that many choose to ascribe to. It's almost like your legacy in a sense, I would think, too. It's like, exactly. you know, what is your legacy? What do you want to leave? What do you want people to remember? But not just remember you by, but do differently, perhaps, you know? 
So, yeah. yeah, very cool. And I think I miss. I think I misspoke. I think I said seven years. I meant seven generations. Yeah. Yeah. Seven generations. So thanks for for clarifying that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Of course. And such an important um, concept too when we think about our world and yes. mm -hmm. you know the the whole piece about um, survive though just the world surviving and all of the you know issues sustainability. Sorry to interrupt. I, it is. Um, to me, it's so fascinating because there are so many people today in business who are trying to um, put their stamp on things or whatever, but they don't think beyond maybe the next quarter or maybe the next year. And so we, we have a lot of things that are being done in business today and um, decisions that are being made and strategies that are being worked out that may be really looking at it short-sightedly and not really looking for the long haul. And perhaps we might see business go down a different road if we were to look at, you know, what is the impact of what you're doing right now, you know, seven generations down the line or something. I think that would be very a really interesting um, conversation to have with CEOs all over the place. Yeah, yeah. Ra rather than the quarterly mm -hmm. or <laughs> this yeah. week, right? Yeah, which kind of brings us into that next question when we think about leadership. So we believe we need every voice, every idea, and every heart in order to seize every opportunity to tackle today's complex and challenging problems. What should leaders think about and do differently with young marginalized individuals to fully engage their voices as vital contributors towards success in organizations and a sustainable world? Yeah. That's a big that's question. A, <laughs> Sorry, Will. Yeah. No, I'm thinking from my personal experience of being at a like a prestigious, predominantly white institution like Stanford, um, and the non-native individual uh, leaders, um, administrations that you I connected with, and I think obviously everyone has their own positionalities on like how they choose to interact with others and who they can connect with the most on an interpersonal level. But I think you know the biggest thing is just giving the opportunity mm. to individuals of these marginalized groups to be involved in different spaces, find, give pathways for, you know, development, for hiring practices, et cetera. And also just coming from a place of empathy and understanding that as a, as a leader, and you're trying to bring more people in the fold who don't look like you and aren't like you, that you don't know everything. Yeah. Like you need to take the time and give yourself self grace and allow them to give the, and give those, you know, uh, people who are following you grace to, understand that you're going to make mistakes along the way mm -hmm. and it might not be pretty. It could be very messy and coming to like a, you know, when you have a cultural mismatch, it's not going to be a simple straight line to, you know, uh, bring them completely into your way of thinking when they shouldn't, you know, like right. assimilation is bad. Acculturation is like better, but rather just coming to like a mutual understanding of, um, the fact that we all view the world in different ways and hopefully can embody mutual respect, obviously discounting like if mutual respect in, um, atones for bigotry in any way. But. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we just did, our last podcast was on culture fit versus culture ad. And so that kind yeah. of, to me, speaks to that. You know, you're thinking about, you, you don't necessarily want uh, leaders to expect that anybody would come in and just fit into a mold you know you want to make yeah. sure that you honor what they bring to the table so i, I mean the studies on cultural fit are just really not cute <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a very 
it's very much a ideal that I mean, uh, I think to some organizational studies classes I took um, in my grad program is it's just kind of a way of promoting homogeneity, whether mm, yes. that's through like thought or identity. Um, it's really it's much better to look at the terms of culture ad and maybe have mm-hmm. some forms of cultural fit, obviously like in terms of qualifications and like if this person is like, you know, able to do the position effectively. But rather, if you ascribe to this, you know, cultural fit as the only outlining thing, you're just going to keep getting people who constantly reproduce the same uh, status. And that's very common, too. I, I remember, a stu- I can't remember the name of it, but a study I read on, like, professional managerial firms um, mm-hmm. and how damaging that was to their efforts to, pr- to promote diversity in the organization. Yeah. You know, you think about some of these Fortune 50, Fortune 100 com- companies that have been in business for 125 years or whatever, and they've got a bunch of bureauc- bureaucracy, you know, within, and, and they are having a hard time shifting gears because culture fit was something they stood so sternly on all these years, you know, all these generations. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. Great. So, um, I have the next question too because um, it has to do with because a little bit of uh, that I know you. I would sound silly saying this. <laughs> <laughs> so you have always been such a strong leader, as I said mm-hmm. earlier, um, in the years that I've known you. So as you are beginning your career, how are you hoping to change the world? Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> um, I have. Well, I'm just starting. I have further educational goals. Um, I want my dream is in the next like five, six years to achieve, do a joint law degree, JD, mm-hmm. MBA, master's in business administration program. Uh, both my parents are native and have MBAs as well and have done incredible work within financial economic development within tribal governments. I had the privilege recently to attend the leadership summit for the Native American Finance mm-hmm. Officers Association. Uh, which held their conference conveniently in downtown Seattle. So I got a trip home, which was nice, (laughs) and got to meet a a part of a cohort of young professionals like myself interested in this very important tribal economic development work. But yeah, my kind of ideal for myself and something I know I'm very good at is just being a connector um, of people from very different backgrounds, very different groups, and really just trying to represent people of my identity in the best way possible, knowing that I'm just one representation of a massive heterogeneity of indigenous peoples in this continent and beyond. Mm -hmm. But I really want to change the world and just having, positioning myself where I can make decisions that will allow people like who look like me and who are from my background have the same opportunities I did growing up. Mm -hmm. Because I grew up from the very privileged background in a very privileged community, um, which is not something I want for and for um, the in the specifically in terms of the homogeneity of where I grew up. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. I I'd love for people like me to be able to live on the reservation, grow up, and have the same amount of educational opportunities and options as I did. I love that, and I love. I think what a better world, right? If even at, at your young age, you're looking back and saying, "I want to make a better world," so that other people can also have the same experience. And I think that's, mm-hmm. that's really powerful. And one of the things we were talking about in an earlier podcast was that, um, you know, changing the world starts just 
right in our own communities, right in our own homes, that that's where it can, mm. that's where it starts. It's yes, we have to have policy change and, and we have to think, um, you know, about the whole world, but sometimes that's so overwhelming that if we can just start right here and make a difference in our own community, our own families and have that reach out, if everybody's doing that, then, um, then one step at a time we change the world. So I love that, that you're looking back and saying, how can I also help those that are coming up behind me um, to also yes. um, have good encouraging. It's yeah. so encouraging. It, it makes my heart happy to hear you say that you went, you came up to Seattle to go to that conference because, you know, it's, um, I don't know very many indigenous people outside of the people I work with, you know, some of the folks that I work with. And, and so I, and not having kids, I don't often run into younger people. So I'm really encouraged to hear that, that there is a, um, a robust, you know, movement towards um, higher education and the things that should always have been but now it's a it's definitely a, um, on the radar, and I I hope that it stays on the radar. I, I think it will. I don't know how we could go back. I can't imagine that we would ever. Oh, that would be a nightmare, wouldn't it? <clears throat> Sorry. I mean, one of my most favorite institutions in this in the world is uh, our tribal colleges and the work they do within our communities. And I I had a, I was lucky to be able to research them a lot within my master education program but mm -hmm. having those places of knowledge sitting within our own communities and giving access to individuals from our background at um with that that allows them to stay home and stay culturally embedded and gets the skills necessarily to serve their communities and also pursue their own interests mm. outside of the community if yeah. that is of their prerogative that i think is way incredibly important while also having us in like every you know i would love to see people like me in every a part of society and level, but we're pretty small populations. So that also is a lot of work. Yeah. Comparative. So, and I think that's a great example of where we have to start to think differently, right? Just like you're talking about, it's like not everybody has to go out to a university, but how do we actually bring it yeah. to the population yes. so that they can actually do it in, in their own communities. And that's thinking a little bit um, differently. Yeah. And thinking even further, like, I mean, you know, university and college isn't for everyone. It's not always going mm -hmm. to be that. I'm a big proponent of liberal education and the way it's theorized within um, the higher education model, but we're like a reckoning right now. And with the, the evolving workforce, we don't know what, we do have some idea, but we don't know exactly what skills will be necessary and what will be lucrative and what will be good for the world in general and right. population within the next 10 or 20 years. So it may be, the world in 20 years in terms of how we look at education and vocational training for positions and what we define as success. Um, and success should not be defined by college in any means. And I'm a yeah. huge believer in that. Yeah. Um, it'll, we have no idea. And so, you know, I always just say roll with the punches. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, gosh. I, and the uncertainty that, that the world is in I, right now is crazy, isn't it? Yeah. You just may remember my term. What an uncertainty uh, means endless possibility. Mm, That's yeah. something I like yeah. as well. I don't know yeah. what's going to happen, but there's infinite roads. And my third eye gives me some idea, but it's not always right. It's sometimes very drowsy. Mm, yeah. So rich. Yes. Well, and I just, it kind of brings back a point that I was thinking about earlier too. And we're talking about bringing people into the 
into the workplace and making sure that people feel that sense of belonging Mm -hmm. and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And without that, we don't get all the great ideas and we don't get the innovation. And those organizations that aren't innovating aren't going to be successful. The world is changing too fast. We cannot continue to do the same thing over and over and over. That for there won't be success for that organization, no. and it's changing in ways that we are not going to be able to necessarily see where we are right now and how that um, has a a clear line to the different. You know, it's just that different enough that that businesses are scrambling right now trying to figure out we have to completely re-engineer or we have to reinvent or we have to do everything differently and so it's going to it's going to require different skills and to your point will you know it may not be that people have to race for that um higher and highest and highest of educations right because while that was really important when i was coming up in business um we're now seeing that that may not necessarily always be appropriate. There are some things that we need people's talents. We need their skills. We need their creativity. But do we yeah. need them to hold, you know, a, a PhD, PhD for it, right? Yeah. <laughs> yep. And also in terms of thinking of, you know, people of my generation, like I entered the workforce in the remote world. Yes. That's yeah. my that's right. my baseline. Yeah. You know, yeah. And that's a baseline for a lot of people like Mm-hmm. Um, so just under saying that the cons- physical constraints of the old ways are kind of irrelevant at this point. It's just up to each leader and organization to choose what path they want to take their right. people on. And also understand that it's very much a, um, it's a war of preference. But that's obviously, you know, I'm speaking to the privileged space of being in the laptop working class. Right. Um, yeah. Because that's not an option for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And we need, we need all the, all those people also that are coming into work every day, the people that are more um, labor focused. That's Mm -hmm. a really, really key, important part of our, our world too. Yeah. Yeah. There's a certain level of engagement, not just, um, you know, physically engaging in your work, but, um, emotionally engaging in your work if you can go to work. And so there's a whole, to your point, there's a whole workforce right now who have started in business remotely. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. what is that? How do they define that that different level of engagement when they're sitting in front mm-hmm. of their laptop? That's interesting. Yeah. It really forces you to um, test different ways of being creative, I would think. you know. Mm-hmm. So... What are you really excited about that's coming up in your future? Oh, well, I'm excited to spend a month in Lake Taps um, mm. and work on my laptop from home, um, from home home, and enjoy <laughs> the summer with my nice. boat and <laughs> inner tubes. Um, <laughs> oh, I get my 2020 graduation this fall. Uh, June Stanford is hosting a specific graduation for my class year because we oh, missed it because wow. they're very we they we obviously I mean Good. they have their resources and they're very interesting keeping us engaged so it's kind of obligatory nevertheless um yeah just kind of living life I can't really complain study for the GRE mm. uh to apply for school again and just in general, I'm very satisfied with where I am now. I live in a lovely apartment with amazing friends. I am in a city where probably 70%, 60% of my social life is. And I have plans to go to the park after work. So, <laughs> nice, <yeah>. nice. 
<laughs> and uh, and you're coming up here where it's raining, so just just to oh, let you know. Well, yeah, I'll be at Memorial Day, so hopefully it's nice. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll go paddleboarding in my rain jacket. There you go. It's uh, one of those I'm cooler a Pisces, summers. So I'm fine with it. <laughs> That's cool. Well, mm. thank you again, Will, so much for spending the time with us today. And um, it was just such a pleasure. It really was. It's been great meeting you. And I just love this conversation. I'm going to have to go back and listen to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Likewise, such a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to be here and to reflect in such a manner. Oh, it was lovely. Thank you. What an awesome episode. It really was. It was fun. So much fun and so uh, inspiring and hope-filled. I just love yes. to hear from those leaders that are coming up and that will be um, helping us, well, and will be leading the world, mm-hmm. right? They'll be leading the world. And so we're, we're in good hands. It makes me feel oh, like we're in great hands. So much richness there. It was yep. great. Yep. So let's keep the conversation going. If you have questions or comments about the show, you can find us on all our social media channels at lifting underscore leaders. We've got other amazing podcasts coming up as well. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you know someone who could benefit from this episode, please share it with them, text them, email them, or take a screenshot and share it on your Instagram and tag us at lifting underscore leaders. If you'd like to know more about us, our guests, or the show, please go to our website at liftingleaderspodcast.com. You'll find show notes there as well. Thank you to Ari Chance Roberts for his technical support of our show. Please subscribe to our podcast. It's free. If you're looking for help in developing your leaders or would like a growth opportunity yourself through leadership coaching, please contact us through our Lifting Leaders podcast website. Thank you, Trisha, for co-hosting with me. Thank you, Crystal. And thank you to our audience for listening. Find ways every day to lift each other up. Have a fantastic week. Take care.